Thank you, choir and Esther and Will for leading us in worship this morning. We're going to read from Hosea 2 today. Hosea 2, we're going to read verses 4 and 5 and 19 and 20 in just a few minutes. Today we wrap up this three-week study or walk through, uh, look at the, the book of Hosea and the beautiful story that is there. Our oldest son, uh, Landon, has an unusual tattoo on the ring finger of his left hand. It is a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. And so, and so God gives us symbols, he gives us metaphors, images, analogies. Because we're limited in our understanding, we just don't have the, the vocabulary, we don't have the categories into which to place his love. So he gives us these signs, again, these, these metaphors and symbols. And in the book of Hosea, uh, he gives us two metaphors, two symbols, two analogies to help us grasp uh, his love. So one is that of, a, of an angry but broken-hearted parent, and the other is that of an angry and broken-hearted, betrayed husband. Let's look at those two. First, uh, the loving, broken-hearted parent. Chapter 11, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. It was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is his pet name for Israel. It is I who taught Ephraim to walk. Remember, we're talking about a symbol, an analogy, a metaphor. So, so God presents himself as a parent who's excited about his child learning to walk. When Landon, our oldest son, learned to walk, Carrie and I were away. My parents were watching him, and when we came home, they said, this was before cell phones, I'm sure they would have called us when he took his first step. When we walked in the door, they said, Landon started walking. Well, of course, you would have thought uh, he had designed the SLS and flown it to the moon himself. We were so excited. He walked. We peppered my mom with questions. How far did he walk? Did he stumble or did he really walk? Did it hurt when he fell? We were so proud. We're proud, of course, when our kids learn to say their first word or when they walk. We're, because we love them with a love beyond measure. And so God says, again, giving us this kind of hook to hang on to. I, I was there when my children learned to walk, telling us that he loves us with, with the love of a parental love. But with that capacity for such profound love comes the potential for profound pain. It's been said that to be a parent is to have your heart walk around outside your body, and it's true. And so God experiences the, the disappointment, the anger, the broken heart of a parent whose child has made a poor and self or, or a series of poor and self-destructive decisions. God gives us in the book of Hosea these metaphors, these analogies of his love. The first is that of a loving but angry and broken-hearted parent. The second, and the primary image, of course, 
in the book of Hosea is that of a husband, of a loving but betrayed husband. And that's where we're going to read from chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to read verses 4 and 5, and then we'll skip to 19 and 20. Remember the symbolism, the analogy. In the first two verses, we'll see his hurt, his anger, his disgust at her his, his, his people's adultery, as if, as if it were adultery. And then, and then in the next two verses, we'll see his, his hope for being reunited, his hope that one day as, as, uh, as husband and wife would be reunited after a split, that they would be back together. Let's, let's look at verses 4 and 5. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil, and my drink. And that's the bad news. And then the good news comes in verses 19 and 20 where we see his hope for reconciliation. I will betroth you. Betroth, of course, is a matter of being engaged. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness in just and ju- justice, in love, and that's the Hebrew word hesed and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So God's people had wandered, had embraced other gods, had abandoned the moral and ethical guidelines He had laid out for them. And just like the parent of disobedient children and the husband of a betraying wife, He is angry and He is brokenhearted. Let's talk first about his anger. God becomes angry. To, to understand the emotions and to, even to attribute emotions to our Creator is a, is a big task. But, but in the Bible, he, dis, he expresses even the emotion of anger. N.T. Wright said we should look at it like this. Imagine, he said, a master violin maker. Someone like Stradivari. The, the master at carefully crafting this wonderful instrument. So for a particular student, he crafts that violin carefully, painstakingly. He crafts the violin and then gives it as a gift to that student, expecting that it will bring joy to the student and to those who will hear it played. And then... And then the master craftsman finds out that the student to whom he gave this painstakingly crafted instrument is using that violin as a tennis racket. How angry would the master be? He would cry out in anger, why would you take such a beautiful gift that I gave to you for free and painstakingly made? Why would you cheapen the gift by using it as a tennis racket? The master would be angry. And, and in that way, N.T. Wright said, God is angry because our sin is the misuse of, our, of his gifts to us. And, and so God, is, God becomes angry. By the way, it wouldn't hurt us to remember that God becomes angry. It would, it would do us well to remember that the anger of the Almighty is no small matter. Now, I hope you know that I'm not a fear-mongerer. However, 
The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the, is the beginning of wisdom. So call it awe, call it reverence, but a, holy, but a healthy recognition that, that God has the power to discipline us is the beginning of good, wise decisions. The, the healthy recognition that God in His power can discipline us. It ought to help us make better decisions. God, God felt anger toward His people and, and I believe still does. He felt anger. But He also was broken hearted. He was angry over their immorality. He was, he was angry to the point that that he punished his people. Before we get to him being brokenhearted, let's pull over, just stay here for a moment and talk about his anger. He was angry to the point that he punished the people of Israel using the people of Assyria. So the Assyrians in 722 marched into Israel, the northern kingdom, and that was essentially the end of the northern kingdom. We talk about the ten lost tribes. That is all attributed to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians, as far as we know, were a godless nation who went marching in. And seven, again, 722 B.C. annihilated the people of the northern kingdom. Does it seem odd to you that God would use other people uh, to punish his people? I thought about that when I read... A book by Ray Jones, The Farm in Jones Valley. Some of you all know that we lost one of our community's leading citizens, Ray Jones, just a few weeks ago. But in his marvelous book, The Farm in Jones Valley, he tells about his father, Carl T. Jones, who went off to World War II. He had a lead farmhand named Larkin. And he left Larkin in charge of the farm, but he also left Larkin in charge of discipline of his children. And so he said to Ray Jones, who was then a little boy, now, while I'm gone, if you need spanking, now Larkin is, is going to do it. Carl T. said to his young son, Ray, while I'm gone, Larkin is going to be in charge of the farm. And Carl T. said to the little Ray, if you need a spanking, Larkin will do it. Your mother will tell Larkin when and how severe Remember now, it's not Larkin that will do the real spanking. It will be me and your mother, understand? Ray wrote that he only had to be spanked once or twice, but each time Larkin said, Now, Bubba, remember, this ain't me. It's your mama and daddy. Now, I know that's not exactly like the Assyrians marching in and, and punishing Israel. But it was not the imperialism of the Assyrians at work. It was... The fact that God had withdrawn his hand of protection and that God who had become not only brokenhearted but angry had punished his people. So God gives us these images, these symbols of, of, a, of a loving parent who's angry and heartbroken and then of a, of a husband whose wife has committed adultery and he's angry but then he is. Let's, let's move there now. He is, also, he is also broken in spirit. He is his heartbroken. The people of Israel understood his sternness. That was not a surprise. They understood his anger. But when the book of Hosea was written and people began to read it, they must have seen a, 
a different side of God, that tender side of God, that emotionally vulnerable side of God. The pain of a husband whose wife has betrayed him. Tilford Junkins was a chaplain in World War II in Europe. And he told about meeting a young boy from Birmingham. This young soldier boy had just gotten married right before he shipped out. Oh, he was so in love, and all he could talk about was his young bride and being married, and he couldn't wait to get home. He kept talking about and anticipating the reunion when he would come home. The young soldier did survive the war and, and came home, but Junkin said he didn't like telling the rest of the story because when, when that young soldier husband pulled into the train station in Birmingham. His wife was waiting there for him, pregnant with another man's child. Now, if you can feel that pain, that pain of betrayal, you can begin to feel the pain of our Creator toward the betrayal of His people and His broken heart. He gives us these symbols, these images, these metaphors for, for how he feels toward us. One, he, he feels like a parent who's so disappointed in the bad and self-destructive choices of, of his or her child. And then he, he talks about being a spouse who's betrayed and the anger and the brokenheartedness that comes from that. And I wonder, I wonder how you and I might compare to the people of, of ancient Israel. Their sins were... Their sins fell basically into two categories, that of immorality and, and idolatry. Immorality, not only sexual immorality, but unethical business practices, the oppression of the poor. Idolatry, of course, the worship of pagan gods. We would do well not to cast stones at ancient Israel, would we not? We, it feels a bit like we too are wandering as a people, as it's a culture. Remember the two categories, immorality and idolatry. We, it feels like we're wandering morally. It feels a bit like we've lost our moral compass. I'm talking about unethical business practices. Our politics has gotten so unethical. Hatred has become not only tolerated, but applauded. It feels like we've lost our moral compass. Idolatry. From the, from the idolization of, of youth and beauty to the worship of, of success, we, it feels like, feels like we've lost our way. We would do well not to cast stones at ancient Israel. So God was angry and his heart was broken. Yet his love was a love that would not quit. Back to our son's tattoo. That word hesed means unfailing, relentless, won't give up on you, love. Why would he have that tattooed on the third finger of his left hand? Because that is his pledge to his bride. An unfailing, relentless, won't give up on you, love. 
And that is the word God uses when he talks about his marriage to his people. You heard it read a moment ago. I will betroth you or engage you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in hesed and compassion. God's hesed is illustrated in, in the book of Hosea by that love story of Hosea who, who loves this promiscuous woman with a funny name, Gomer. How he follows his, wife, his wife's trail of infidelity to the Notel Motel district of Samaria where he paid for her freedom and thus symbolized the hesed, the love of God. Please hear me. You can listen to your critics and to your detractors who say you're not even likable, much less lovable. You can listen to your culture who says if you're not young and beautiful and wealthy and talented and athletic, you're of no value. You can listen to the voices in your head, the voices of regret that say, because of your missteps, you are not worthy of love. Or, you can listen to the whisper of your Creator who whispers like a loving husband, whispers words of love to his wife. Or, the words of a parent who whispers sweet words of love to a son or daughter. You can listen to everything else, or you can listen to the Creator who loves you without measure. Please hear me. You can break God's rules and you can break God's heart, but you cannot break His will to love you. You can forfeit friendships, you can ruin relationships, but you cannot lose You cannot squander God's affection. You can run from, but you cannot hide from God's chesed. Unfailing, relentless, won't give up on you. Love. And that kind of love is transformational. It will change your life. To know, to recognize that we are, in the words of Peter Scazzaro, more more sinful than we would dare admit and yet more deeply loved than we would dare to dream, that will change your life. Not long ago, I was speaking to a group of, uh, of young men in recovery, people who are struggling with an addiction and, and looking for freedom. It was an inpatient residential program. And they were polite as I, as I spoke, but where they engaged with me, where I saw the nods and even heard a couple of amens was when I quoted the song we just sang a moment ago. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. And the chorus says, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me. Not advice and not you're sorry, and not getting beaten up verbally, but the sense that I am, I am loved. Despite myself, despite my choices, that kind of love is transformational. 
And you can listen to the voices that make you feel unloved, and there are plenty, externally and internally. Or you can listen for the voice of a loving husband and a loving father who says, I love you with an unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. There's nothing quite like a love story, right? This story of, of Hosea and Gomer is a, it's a beautiful story. I mentioned last week, great book, movie made out of it. Nothing quite like a love story. Now, I know we men act like we don't like love stories. I know we do. Our wife or our girlfriend wants to watch a movie and wants to watch a romantic comedy. We roll our eyes. But down deep, we kind of like them, too. And then they're the Hallmark Christmas movies, right? Oh. I bought all the, all the ladies in our family have those socks that, you know, on the bottom of them, you know, put your feet up and says, if you can see this, I'm watching a, a Hallmark movie. We, the ladies in our, I have to start in November. I go to whatever the cable thing is, and I have to click record all those Hallmark Christmas love stories. And the guys complain. We all complain. And the movie will start, and we'll roll our eyes, and, you know, ten minutes in, Bill and Sue are mad at each other, can't stand each other. And we all say, oh, I wonder if Bill and Sue will get together. Because we know they will, right? You already know. You already know. And so we roll our eyes sarcastically, but you know what we do? We sit there. We sit there and watch. Just like the women do, we sit there and watch. Because there's just something about a love story, right? The, the, the music we listen to, whether it's on the radio or Spotify or Pandora, hop or hip hop or pop or rock or whatever it is, lots of the songs, right, about, about love, about love. Because a love story communicates. And that's why God used a love story, the story of Hosea and, and, and Gomer, to depict, to symbolize his love for rebellious people. So with that in mind, I want to close with a, with a love story. This this three-week series on Hosea, I want to close with another uh, but similar love story. Erwin McManus is a pastor whose writings I like to read. And he was in the Middle East and had been invited by a group of interested Muslims to speak about the Christian faith. They sincerely wanted to hear about the history and the beliefs of Christians from a Christian. And he, they invited him to the conversation. Now, he didn't know what was coming, but they, they asked him the stories, you know, the questions about stories. And, and they were particularly interested in the incarnation, the embodiment of God in Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas, that God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us. They wanted to hear that explained. Well, he didn't know they were going to ask that, and he pondered for a moment, how would you answer 
For a Muslim, how would you explain the incarnation? And so he began. I once met a girl named Kim. His translator looked at him as if to say, is this is the way you're going to answer that question? I once met a girl named Kim, McManus said, and I fell in love. He continued, I pursued her with my love and pursued her with my love, and then I asked her to be my wife, and she said no. The Muslims seemed to feel the pain of that rejection. I was unrelenting, McManus went on, and asked her again, pursuing her with my love, pursuing her with my love, until she said yes. His Muslim friends seemed relieved. Remember, they were particularly interested in the incarnation and the embodiment of God in Jesus and what we believe. So McManus continued, when I loved Kim, I did not send my brother to Kim, nor did I send a friend. For in issues of love, you must go yourself. And so it is with God. It was, it was not enough to send an angel or a prophet or any other to earth. For in issues of love, you must go yourself. And so God has come in the person of Jesus. McManus continued. That is the story of Jesus, that God has walked among us and He pursues us with His love. He is familiar with rejection, but His love is relentless. And He is here even now, pursuing you with His love. And even if you reject His love, He pursues you still. McManus's analogy seemed to connect. Everybody loves a good love story right and so and so ends the story of Hosea a husband betrayed but who loved with a, a relentless love but remember we don't know whether Gomer went home with Hosea or not Hosea said paid her paid the price for her freedom and turned to his wife and he said you will come home with me now and we will be faithful to each other but then the lights go down and the curtain closes and we don't know whether she went home with him or not which I believe is intentional to remind us that that you and I have the choice that Hosea could pay for her ransom, but only Gomer could choose her freedom. And so God became flesh in the person of Jesus, and by His Spirit still wanders the earth, inviting, wooing, pursuing. But we have the final choice. So someone perhaps in this moment is in that intersection where you are wondering whether or not, deciding whether or not you will continue to run or you will turn to that love 
with all that I have, I hope, pray, wish, you will turn to that love because that love is transformational.